ecstatic. Now I'm delighted because I got the Titans on the show this morning. So <laughs> they'll they'll be in town next week. But it's so nice to see uh, uh, Boston Globe journalist Ellen Clegg and uh, uh, School of Journalism professor uh, Dan Kennedy because they got a new book out, y'all. And uh, and I hear it's a it's a hot one. People are digging it, or people are excited by it because somebody's got to be talking about what is going on in local news and and how we save local news. So uh, it's called What Works in Community News: Media Startups, New uh, Des News Deserts, and the Future of the Fourth Estate. Ellen Clegg and Dan Kennedy. Good morning, welcome. Unmute yourself, Ellen. <laughs> Good morning. How nice to see y'all. Good morning, Babs, the future lawyer. <laughs> we we trying our best. <laughs> How y'all doing? Tell me about this new book. Want to go first, Ellen? Yeah, sure. Um, we're, we're we're grateful that it's finished and it's actually out. Uh, you know, Dan looked at his uh, calendar and realized we first started kicking this idea around at a Chinese restaurant in Harvard Square in 2018, in December. Um, we've been through COVID shutdowns. You know, we got an extension from the publisher because we wanted to actually visit every community we wrote about. So it's a victory just to see it in print. Wow. And I was thrilled to have an excuse to come back to New Haven um, the uh, the New Haven Independent was the main subject of a book I wrote years ago called mm -hmm. The White City. And uh, we decided that we wanted to come back to New Haven for this book, mainly because the Independent had changed so much uh, through the addition of WNHH and, uh, and especially your morning show. We really kind of look at it as the voice of New Haven. Oh, that's kind of you to say. And it's lovely to see y'all again. So, so when you're writing this book, Ellen and Dan, um, did you, when you started it, were you hopeful about local community news? Was that a new concept? Was it just getting started? Were you feeling like, oh, oh gosh, this is like the last, the last straw, right? What were you thinking? I'll let Dan take that because he's been researching this for years. Yeah, I mean, I've been following what's going on with the local news crisis really since about 2008, 2009, mm. uh, when I first started coming down to New Haven. And uh, I've been optimistic all these years. And even though we've seen um, an acceleration of local newspapers closing, mainly at the hands of uh, hedge fund and corporate chain owners, uh, we've also seen a real acceleration in the last few years of um, startup community uh, news projects. You know, when I was doing The Wired City, the New Haven Independent was one of a tiny handful of, of projects uh, that were trying to fill the space created by the decline of corporate media. You had the New Haven Independent, The Voice of San Diego, uh, Min Post out in Minneapolis, uh, which is in our new book, uh, and not much else. And today there were really uh, several hundred of these projects. And uh, there was a day that Ellen and I met uh, at Northeastern and uh, just started writing on a whiteboard what projects we were going to profile. 
And honestly, we could have picked any number of projects because there are just so many of them uh, that are up and running these days. So we wanted to go for a variety of, um, we wanted geographic variety. So we've got, you know, California, the East Coast and the heartland. Uh, we wanted to get urban and rural diversity. We wanted to get ethnic diversity. And we wanted to get a diversity of business models. Now, most of the ones that we ended up looking at are nonprofit, uh, but we do have some for-profit in there. And we have several that are hybrids uh, that are uh, for-profit, but they also have a nonprofit arm uh, that helps support their public interest journalism. So, so when you find all these you know, when you when you when you when you started to look at the decline in 2007, 2008 or whenever you started looking at it and then you come across all these all, all these ones now, do, does it make you feel hopeful? Like, do you feel like, OK, or does it feel. Uh, or does it make you feel, oh, this might not this might not bode well for the future? We're very hopeful and optimistic at the same time, though. It's been very difficult for the launch of new locally based pro projects to keep up with the closure of corporate owned newspapers. And uh, I mean, I think the way I look at it is that things will probably get worse uh, over the next few years. But I do think there'll be a turning point where uh, many, many communities are able to uh, have their own independently owned project. You know, one of the problems, and then I'll, I'll shut up and let Alan talk, but one of the problems is um, we're finding uh, no problem in the affluent suburbs. We have a fairly wealthy community outside of Boston called Marblehead that has three independent news startups uh, in this little town by the ocean. Uh, but at the same time, Rural areas and communities of color are really having a problem uh, establishing projects like this. So, when affluent neighborhoods take this on, does it change? Does it does the type of news change? Like, is the news affluent? Like, who who are they? Who are they talking to? What's the what's the gist of the news? Well, that's a great question, Babs. Um, I've been part of a group that uh, launched a nonprofit in Brookline, Massachusetts, suburb of Boston, <clears throat> town of uh, 65,000. That is has pockets of very high wealth. You know, sports moguls live here. Um, it's uh, a lot of eds and meds people. Um, but uh, there are several faces of Brookline and since the Brookline tab closed down uh, last year, they're, they're not being reported on. Housing is unaffordable. There's a racial wealth gap. Um, there are uh, pockets of uh, great diversity in Brookline, and those populations are not being served at all. So local news gets at, down to the street level, street fairs, the school committee, um, housing policy, you know, uh, mass transit, public safety, all those I think are of broad interest to everybody. 
Well, Ellen, you're making it sound like Brookline.news doesn't cover any of these topics, but but you're trying to fill the gap and and cover some of those topics. Oh, oh yeah, no, we're covering all of these topics. We have um you know, we're at we're covering the town meeting, we're covering the select board, we're covering elections. We really covered in depth what's called the um it's it's an effort to build multi-unit housing along the mass transit lines. And that's been a heated debate. Uh, we've been there every step of the way. So how does that, how do people accept that though? Like are people receiving it? Like are people, or do they feel like you're trying to embarrass us? Do you know what I mean? Like what's the, what's the, what's the mood of the, of the folks getting this news and, and tapping into this news? Well, that's, <laughs> it's very interesting because a local reporter and local uh, people on the board, we hear from our neighbors all the time, you know, why are you doing this? But we have a robust letters to the editor column. And I say the more debate, the merrier. We are actually um, uh, seeing a lot of positive response, uh, surprisingly. So, you know, I get the occasional call, oh, Ellen, you're talking to the wrong people. And I say, well, who are the wrong people, you know? So <laughs> the, the best cure for somebody who thinks uh, this is bad speech is more speech. Mm. And, and, you know, when you talk about um, reaching some of these underserved communities, the nonprofits tend to do a pretty good job of that because who are they trying to impress? They're trying to impress big funders in many cases. And what the big funders often are looking for is, are you reaching underserved communities? Are you reaching communities of color? Uh, they are less concerned with reaching the kind of affluent readers who uh, respond to advertising uh, than consumers of the corporate media are. I, I think the New Haven Independent, for instance, uh, even when they had an all white staff in the early days, uh, tried to dedicate itself to reaching out to all segments of New Haven. And and now the independent itself is a little bit more diverse than it used to be. And it has this wonderful radio station that uh, that that really speaks to everybody in New Haven. Mm. So when you're out there looking at these, as you're doing this research and you're going across the country, um, what did you find most interesting about about some of the, the the news outlets that you've come across? Well, I um I'm from Minneapolis. I know the city pretty well, and I found a very you know Min Post uh, was started by journalists uh, who were laid off from the legacy newspaper, the Star Tribune, and it's focusing on politics and policy primarily, but there was another startup called Sahan Journal uh, that is, is covering the emerging African diaspora in Minneapolis of all places. There are many, many um, Somalians in all walks of life, including you know, in the Minneapolis City Council who were not being covered. And so uh, Sahan Journal launched a couple of years ago. It's uh, gotten, it played a, a crucial role 
in covering communities of color in Minneapolis after George Floyd was murdered. And it's gotten national attention and national funding and is doing quite well. Hmm. And, and are you surprised by that? Like, is that surprising to people? I'm sorry, Dan. Is that surprising that it's doing well? Or does that say, oh, there was a need here and it's filled? It says there was a need a need here. And uh, Sahan Journal has has found even that it it is it needs to cater to the broad to cover the broader Im immigrant community in Minneapolis, which is growing. It it's needed to translate uh, its coverage into several languages, including Spanish, including Hmong, and um, so it's experimenting with new kinds of coverage for people who don't have broadband. It distributes. Sometimes they distribute PDFs of stories at key locations. Hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, I'll, let me tell you a little bit about the Colorado Sun, because I think that was one of the more interesting projects that, that I reported on. Um, the Colorado Sun was started about four or five years ago by 10 uh, top people at the Denver Post who had survived round after round of cuts at the hands of Alden Global Capital, which, along with Gannett, is one of the two worst newspaper owners in the country. And uh, so they started this digital-only project and um, within a couple of years had grown into one of the larger news organizations in Colorado. Uh, now, um, one of the hazards of doing a book like this is that sometimes events move so quickly that you can't keep up with them. Uh, so one of the things that we were really interested in about the Colorado Sun was that they were a for-profit public benefit corporation. Now, a public benefit corporation, it doesn't mean all that much, but it's kind of a signal that you are operating for the benefit of the public rather than for your owners. So they were legally able to take whatever revenues they were earning and plow them back into the journalism rather than uh, being required to enrich their shareholders. Um, the Sun was also one of these hybrids that we were talking about. Uh, they work with a nonprofit organization and people can make their, and people, foundations, whatever, uh, can make their tax-deductible contributions to the nonprofit. And um, the nonprofit uh, can be used to support certain types of public interest journalism in the Colorado Sun. The other aspect of the Sun that we thought was really interesting was that there was a chain of 24 weekly and monthly um, papers out in the Colorado suburbs, the Denver suburbs. And um, the owners wanted to retire and uh, they didn't want to sell them to a corporate chain. So a new organization that's also in our book called the National Trust for Local News stepped forward and put together a deal uh, that acquired these 24 papers, and they brought the Colorado Sun in as a co-owner to help manage the papers. So that seemed like a really interesting um, part of uh, what the Colorado Sun was doing as well. Um, now, as I said, events get ahead of us. 
since the book was finished, uh, the son decided that they were going to go uh, fully nonprofit. So this interesting hybrid model that they were pursuing is going away. They're, they're just going to be a nonprofit like the New Haven Independent. Uh, the other thing that they've decided to do is unwind their co-ownership of the 24 um, suburban papers. So, as I said, a couple of things that had really attracted us to want to do a chapter on Colorado no longer exist. Uh, but it's still a really great startup news organization that is independent and filling this gap created by the cuts imposed by Alden Global Capital. Another thing I wanted to mention about them is that I went out to Denver thinking that uh, the Colorado Sun was just filling this gap in city coverage that had been created by the, um, the decimation of the Denver Post. Uh, and what I found instead was that Denver really could not be described as a news desert. There are a lot of different media outlets in Denver that are doing a pretty good job. Now, the Denver Post has gone from 300 journalists at one time to just 60 uh, when wow. we were reporting the book. Uh, but that still makes them one of the largest news organizations in the state even if half of them are devoted to covering the Denver Broncos. Um, so the Post still does important work. The Sun does important work. Uh, there's a startup online daily called the Denver Gazette that does some pretty good investigative work. There's Colorado Public Radio, which might be the largest newsroom in the state. They were up around 65 or so when I was doing my reporting. And as a result of all this, the Colorado Sun makes an effort, even though they've only got a couple of dozen people, to do some stories out in the rural areas of the state, because that's where the real need is. Um, Denver is not a news desert. The rest of the state really is, once you get outside of Denver and the suburbs. And bringing reliable news and information to those rural parts of Colorado uh, is something that the Colorado Sun sees as a really important part of its mission. Mm. So so let me ask you, uh, all these things that are happening, these startups, these, uh, these reimagining uh, how local news is carried out and, and, and curated, uh, do, do these corporate folks pay attention to this and and look for opportunities to sort of replicate, take over? Like, are, are they paying attention? Are they looking? Are they saying, oh, this is how you do this. We should, we could do this. We have money. We could do it better. The short answer is no. Uh, you want to take it from there, Alan? <laughs> Thanks, Dan, for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the short answer is no, because um, local news is uh, there's a famous saying that Dan has said many times, local news does not scale well. When I was at the Boston Globe, we launched um, a number of twice-weekly local news sections uh, all across eastern Massachusetts, but it was based on advertising, and mm. it was during the collapse of print ads. And 
people's definition of local news in a town is very particular, right? So what's, and it differs from community to community. People in Brookline, they want to know what's going on at Brookline High. They want to know how the Warriors, the sports teams are doing. They want to know where, when the street fair is, and they want to know when the um, first light festival is in, in December and what merchants are going to stay open late. And that, if you're in a corporate chain um, media, that is impossible to do. It, it means you need reporters on the ground who are talking to people, looking at what restaurant is open, what's closing. And that's an expensive proposition for a regional paper uh, to deploy reporters to, you know, Massachusetts has 351 cities and towns. That's a tough that's a tough uh, ground to cover. Well, 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 you're talking about regional papers that actually care. Um, some of <laughs> yes. the, the, the two main chains that we complain about, the papers owned by Alden Global Capital and Gannett, they're just trying to squeeze out the last few drops of blood before they walk away from the whole thing. Uh, but since we're in, since we're talking about Connecticut today, uh, let's talk about uh, the uh, New Haven Register, um, because I think that the strategy is a little bit different there. Uh, the New Haven Register is part of the Hearst chain, which which owns several other papers in Connecticut. And I have some admiration for the Hearst chain. I think they're they're trying to do a good job with the resources that we have. But they kind of look like what Ellen is talking about, and that is, they're very interested in statewide stories. They're very interested in regional stories. And it's difficult for them to really get down on the street and cover what's going on uh, in New Haven on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, they're really uh, interested in larger stories that are of interest to all of their readers across the state. It's not necessarily a terrible strategy. I, as I said, I, I have some admiration for what they're trying to do, but it leaves a wide open gap for the New Haven Independent to come in and cover what's happening uh, on the street on a day-to-day -day basis. And I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, you know, to the success of the New Haven Independent, um, I I get the sense that that people relish having local news about things that are happening up to the minute where they are like people like even even though you know you go to the comment section and everybody's got an opinion about whatever they like that they can have an opinion about whatever right like that somebody is covering you know zoning stuff somebody's covering education someone is keeping a tab on all the apartments that are going up someone is you know tracking the mayor's promises based on you know what he said you know by election you know we're tracking who was hired at the police department and and how white the police department is looking these days versus what it looked like 20 years ago and you know so i so i get that so that's not true i imagine in every place that people don't want that kind of local news or the people that provide local news are not interested in providing it that local. <laughs> well, they're not, you know, the, the corporate owned press uh, 
is either trying to, as I said, squeeze the life out of their papers, or they're pursuing more of a regional and statewide strategy, so they're just not getting down on the street. Um, you're just not really going to be able to make much money from uh, the kind of hyperlocal coverage that we're talking about. Now, you can make some. Uh, you can have for-profit uh, local media that is covering these kinds of uh, hyperlocal issues, but nobody's going to get really wealthy doing it, and that's what the um, the uh, corporate media demands. Uh, their shareholders demand it, and anything less than uh, large amounts of profits just aren't going to be something that they're interested in. Mm. That's why so many of the projects that we're looking at are nonprofit. Now, Ellen and I really believe that we need a diversity of business models out there. And we wish that there was were more for-profit hyperlocal news projects launching. Um, by the way, I should say, of the hundreds of local news startups that you see out there, most of them actually are for-profit, but that's almost a term of art. What they are is no profit. <laughs> uh, they're, you know, one or two people who just decided to take out an LLC and start covering their community. But any time that you get a um, local news project that uh, has more than a tiny little bit of reporting capacity, that's when you tend to see them converting to nonprofit because weirdly enough, that's where the money is. Mm. And so by you, the money is, that means uh, phil philanthropic giving, like, you know, uh, uh, foundations and who care about this and want to invest in communities in this way in terms of local local news is, is, is healthy for communities? Yeah, it's it's the NPR model, really. I think people are familiar with that. So uh, at Brookline News, we have a thousand local donors, um, and it's at all levels. Uh, people, our content is free. There's no paywall, but we do. We have about five thousand people who've signed up for our newsletter, and um, it's a really it's a sign of that health a healthy feedback loop with the community that they care. We're we're starting an event strategy and a newsletter sponsorship strategy. So nonprofit status allows us to have a bigger revenue pie. Hypothetically. Mm. <laughs> a for-profit gets money from two different sources, advertising, which is way, way down, and uh, by charging subscriptions uh, to their readers. And uh, certainly at the hyper-local level, that has proved to be a really tough sell. Uh, for nonprofits tend to have a three-legged stool. Uh, you get large gifts um, from foundations and um, high net worth individuals, which I think Paul Bass taught me is nonprofits speak for rich people. <laughs> um, and then uh, you get essentially membership donations. Uh, a lot of nonprofits might give you something with it, like maybe an extra newsletter or early access to uh, certain types of content. A lot of nonprofits just say thank you. 
And then there is a third category that is sometimes referred to as earned income. And this is advertising. Nonprofits can take advertising and uh, events businesses. Uh, I don't think that the New Haven Independent has any paid events, uh, but some of the nonprofits we looked at do. And some of them have free events that are sponsored. And, uh, and so that ends up being another form of revenue. So the opportunities to bring in money to pay for the journalism these days are actually much greater with nonprofits than they are with for-profits. So, so when you look down the road, when you think about the future, when you future forecast, what, I mean, are you still optimistic? I mean, what do the trends tell you? Dan, how's your crystal ball? Oh, um, you know, uh, 20 years ago, I was telling everybody that there would be no print newspapers by now. So I'm a bad person to make predictions. <laughs> well, there there almost aren't any print newspapers. I mean, you know. Well, they're, they're smaller than they used to be, but they're still here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that what we're going to see is I think that things will get worse before they get better. But I do think they're going to get better. Um, I think that many, many communities are going to um, find that they can take care of their own news and information needs. And I think that Ellen and I are hoping that our book will serve as an inspiration uh, for the launch of more of these projects. The problem, as always, is going to be um, serving uh, urban communities, serving rural communities, as we said, the sweet spot is the affluent suburbs. And I think that Yale is, uh, Yale, Yale. I think that New Haven is a little bit different uh, because I think Yale has a lot to do with why New Haven is different. Um, because New Haven is a diverse city, uh, not especially affluent, and yet it may be the best covered medium-sized city in the country. Uh, because of the uh, the work that the independent does. I'll give you an example of how hard this can be. Uh, now, Ellen has had great success in Brookline. Uh, I live in Medford, which is another suburb of Boston, and it's a medium-sized city. Um, and I'll tell you, it's not a low-income city. I think it's fairly affluent. We've got a great deal of diversity. Um, but we have not been able to start anything in Medford because although it's affluent, it's not as affluent as Brookline. Uh, it's well-educated, but it's not in the upper, upper tier the way a place like Brookline is. And um, a group of us talked about trying to start a nonprofit. Uh, Ellen was our guest speaker uh, <laughs> at one of our meetings. And what we realized is that we're all still working. None of us had the time <laughs> to put into organizing the or the the group that would be needed to get it off the ground, starting the fundraising. And uh, I spent a year trying to talk two different uh, for-profit newspaper publishers into coming to Medford. And they both took a long look at it and they both ended up saying no in the end. And now there's a third nonprofit that I'm very hopeful about, but it hasn't happened yet. And uh, we'll have to see what happens. Hmm. Well, I mean, that, 
I would. I mean, I I appreciate your optimism because I'm an optimistic person myself. But but it sounds like you almost can't be optimistic because you're getting no's and there's still news deserts out there. And it seems like the divide is getting bigger, even though, you know, uh, this is another example of it, it, that if, if, if rich folks, if rich affluent people don't take this up as a as some kind of cause, then, you know, what you know, what happens? Well, why don't you, okay, this might be an opening to talk about, what's the name of that big philanthropy, Alan? You can talk about them. Uh, uh, the American Journalism Project or the MacArthur, the Press press Forward. Press Forward, that's it. So there's a new um, gathering together of different philanthropies. Uh, it's run by the MacArthur Foundation. It's called Press Forward. And it just launched and made a promise of uh, devoting 500 million philanthropic dollars to local news all across the country, focusing on communities of color, underserved areas, and rural areas. Uh, it's just getting started, but the $500 million pledge is over five years and spread over the whole country. That's not enough. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's great. Everybody's grateful to see it happening, but um, covering rural areas, I, I reported in Iowa and drove all over Northwest Iowa. Um, and there are tiny towns that have a print newspaper that's a hundred years old or more, still run by a family ownership that are really struggling. They're for profit. Uh, so they are, um, in Western Iowa, they're looking, to, a number of papers are looking to a hybrid model. Uh, some former journalists and academics started the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, which is an umbrella nonprofit that can dole out grants to for-profit papers. I think the Press Forward initiative could look at something like that. So it we're watching it with um, optimism, but... Who knows? Hmm. As Ellen says, $500 million uh, is not as much as it sounds. On the other hand, the people behind Press Forward are doing something very smart. They have identified um, foundations all across the country that they're trying to work with at the local level to try to leverage that $500 million into much more money uh, that will support... Um, that will support news projects uh, at the local level. So there could end up being a multiplier effect. You throw $500 million into the pot and, and that could result in that growing into a much larger amount of money. Wow. I've enjoyed you all today. I'm so glad you could come on, but I know you all are coming to New Haven. Ellen, are you coming to New Haven too? Are you coming on Tuesday? I I, I can't. I'm um, out of town. Otherwise, I'd love to uh, come in person. Well, Dan will be here in conversation with Paul Bass on Tuesday at uh, Book Trader Cafe at 7 o'clock, uh, uh, 1140 Chapel Street. And we're going to talk about what works in uh, community news. It's the, the new book by uh, Dan Kennedy and Ellen Clegg. And uh, thank you all for coming on this morning. This is a very interesting conversation. I like I like having you all as my guests. How's the podcast going anyway before we before we before Harry runs me off air? How's the podcast? <laughs> Lots of fun. 
still lots of fun, still, yes. still, still engaging and interesting. You were one of our favorite guests, Babs, although I have to admit we tell that to all of our guests. <laughs> that's, no, that's, actually, good you know. that's good parenting. That's good parenting. That's good parenting. I love all my children. You're all are my favorites. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for being great guests. I will see you, Dan, uh, Tuesday, January 16th at 7 o'clock at Book Trader in New Haven. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to having my copy of the book. And looking forward to reading it. Thank you all so much for being great guests this morning. Thank you so much, Babs. You take Thanks. care. And Thank uh, you. And Harry for us. He's back there somewhere right he now. He is back there somewhere. <laughs> waiting, to, <laughs> waiting to push us off. Thanks, Harry. Okay. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> what okay. Works in Community News by uh, Dan Kennedy and Ellen Clegg. Thank you all. I'll see you all tomorrow. Thank you.